Well, somebody asked me uh, <clears throat> Friday night, prior to the service, who is Daniel? <laughs> I said, funny that you should ask. So we're going to pick our study back up in the book of Daniel, so turn to chapter 11, if you would. We're going to begin to look at the kings of the north and the kings of the south, and all that that implies, and why that is even here, that history is even here. To understand chapter 11 and then certainly chapter 12, it's important to go back and just remember chapter 10. And chapter 10 really is an introductory chapter to these latter chapters of Daniel. And it was in chapter 10, if you recall, that we got a glimpse of something. Does anybody remember what we caught a glimpse of in chapter 10? Spiritual warfare, that's right. We caught a glimpse of the cosmic battle, if you will, that parallels the earthly struggles of, of, of God's people. And in this case, particularly Israel and Daniel. The Apostle Paul reminds us, if you... Remember from the New Testament book of Ephesians in the sixth chapter, Paul tells us that our struggle, our warfare, our battle, if you will, is not against what? Flesh and blood, but rather against the spiritual forces of darkness in the heavenly realms. In other words, he he speaks directly to uh, uh, spiritual beings who are... Uh, for one reason or another, opposed to our lives and opposed to the work of God, the kingdom of God on earth. And this, we see this clearly in chapter 10 uh, of uh, the book of Daniel. In verse 13 of that passage, uh, we see it speaks of the prince of the Persian kingdom. The implication being there very, very possibly could be uh, spiritual beings principalities, powers, and so forth, assigned literally to countries, to uh, uh, geographic areas, to people groups that have some kind of power and dominion uh, that's been given to them uh, in order largely to uh, keep control over that particular area. In verse 14 of chapter 10, we see that an angel uh, comes to speak to Daniel. Now, Daniel, if you go way back into chapter 9, Daniel knows from Jeremiah's prophecies that the 70 years that they've been held captive in Babylon are coming to a close. And so Daniel is praying for his people. He's praying for the Jews. What's to happen to us? What's, what are we going to experience? So he prays this intense prayer in chapter 9. In chapter 10, an angel comes to him, is dispatched, uh, he says, with the answer to the prayer. This is what's going to happen to your people in the future. But we're told that the angel uh, was held up, was resisted by the prince of Persia. So apparently there's some kind of conflict going on in this unseen realm that we don't know about and we would never know about if we weren't told about it. That's the point. 
And so he says, we, I was resisted. How long uh, was this angel resisted by the Prince of Persia? Do you, do you recall? 21 days, three weeks. Have you ever had a, a time period where you've been praying and praying and, and it, it doesn't seem like there's been an answer? Yeah, all of us have. And it's easy to grow impatient, isn't it? It's easy to go, gosh, does this, am I even praying right and all this sort of thing? When in fact, it could very possibly be that there's spiritual warfare going on around your life. And there is a resistance, if you will, in that realm about an answer coming. You say, well, couldn't God just bring the answer? Of course. But I'm not one given to question how he does what he does. I'm learning uh, to say, okay, I see things in the scriptures. That must be how it works. Okay, pretty much. So he explains to Daniel, this angel finally gets her, he explains to Daniel that his purpose in coming was to give Daniel understanding as to what would happen to his people in the future. In effect, the answer to his prayer. The angel tells Daniel that much time is involved in the vision. He says in verse 14, For the vision concerns a time yet to come. Now that may be inclusive of the immediate time, but I think the idea really is it's going to be a long time. This vision is going to encompass uh, God's plan and purpose for the Jews in its entirety. The particulars of the vision will include the experience of the Jews in the time of a man by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes. And that vision will culminate in the great tribulation just before Jesus' second coming. So you can see this is, a, this is an expanse of time. Antiochus Epiphanes rules in the second century B.C., and so from then, clear to, if you will, the end of time when Jesus returns, this is the, uh, uh, the extent of this vision that Daniel is going to be given. I suspect that Daniel probably did not understand the details of the vision. As you read chapter 11 and 12, uh, things, uh, there's not a lot of definition there's some specificity, but there's, there's no names, there's no dates. And so we're left to try to understand it in retrospect, to look back and see what fits, what matches uh, what this prophecy seems to say. It's fascinating if you read ancient Near Eastern history, in particular for this time period, you see uh, tremendous, tremendous uh, matching up of history, fulfilled history, with this prophecy. There's a, there's a whole uh, wing of liberal theology that believes that Daniel was not written in the 6th century B.C. It's not really prophecy. Rather, because of the accuracy of the details, rather, it could only have been written after the fact. So here's, here's somebody writing all this down, knowing what had happened, now writes it all down and says it's prophecy. Well, I submit to you that's not the case. I submit to you that God actually gave Daniel this vision 
and then it was fulfilled. And it's left to us now, after the fact, to look back and say, wow, aha, aha, aha. Does that make sense to you? So this is very, very important. And in fact, uh, Peter says, if you go back to 1 Peter, he talks about the prophets of old longed to know and understand the things that were given to them. But these things, to understand them, were left for us to understand. Marvelous, marvelous understanding. Now, although Daniel probably did not understand the details of this vision, the vision did give him a basis for reassurance. Reassurance of two things. Number one, who's in control? God's in control. That is the overarching theme of the book of Daniel. We see that reflected in the fact that there are these visions that God really knows the future. He knows he's in control of human history. And so Daniel draws comfort from that knowledge. God is in control. Sometimes things feel absolutely out of control, don't they? You think, my gosh, is there nobody at the switch? (laughs) Yes, there is. The challenge for us is to know that God's in control and to know that his purposes are good and pleasing and perfect and then to trust him and then to to wait patiently, quietly, thankfully, hopefully that his will is being worked out in our life, in our circumstance. Sad part about about our lives and existence is that because of our fallen, the fallenness of our human natures, uh, it's hard to be patient, isn't it? That's probably one of the most difficult things, is to be patient. We can go for a little while, for a day or two, a few hours, maybe a week, but then impatience begins to nibble around the edges of our life. So God is in control. God is. Turn to your neighbor and remind your neighbor, God's in control. Secondly, secondly, Daniel could be reassured that God did have a plan. He did have a plan which would end in his ultimate victory, his ultimate victory over not only Israel's enemies, not only the circumstances, but it would result in God's great fulfillment of his good purposes. So Daniel could receive reassurance of those two things. Now, Daniel chapter 10 is basically, as I said a moment ago, it's basically an introduction to the fourth and final vision given to Daniel. That will be in chapters 11 and 12. Chapters 11 and 12 are about the fourth and final vision. In chapter 11, we have the revelation of important events beginning with a man by the name of Darius the Mede. You'll notice him being mentioned in chapter 11, verse 1. So it starts with Darius the Mede. He rules in about 539 B.C. And the events extend to the last Gentile ruler in the time of the end. So there's this tremendous expanse of time marked off 
the beginning with Darius the Mede, and it will conclude with the last Gentile ruler at the end of time. And all of this will encompass God's plan for his people, Israel. Chapter 11 divides into two basic sections. The first section is encompassed by the first 35 verses. And we're not going to read it. We're not going to go into a lot of detail. I'm going to leave that for yourself. I'm just going to kind of hopscotch over and, and give you an overview of this. The first 35 verses describes two things. First of all, it describes the major rulers of the Persian Empire. Now, if you, if you go back through the earlier chapters of Daniel, and you start especially in chapter 2, remember when the, the vision of the statue was given to Nebuchadnezzar? And he didn't understand it, and Daniel comes and tells him what it's all about. And the statue was presented in, in four major sections, four different kinds of, uh, composed of four different kinds of materials. The, the head was made out of gold, and that represented what? Nebuchadnezzar, or if you will, the Babylonian Empire. And then the chest and the arms were of silver, and that would represent the second major empire, the Persian Empire. The Persians conquered the Babylonians. And then the third empire came into play, and that was represented by the belly and the thighs of bronze. That represented what empire? The Greek Empire. So you see these successive empires represented in this statue. Starts off with Babylon. And remember, all of these, uh, all of these um, empires are going to have strategic uh, uses and purposes with respect to the life of the Jews. Under the Babylonians, the Jews were disciplined, carried off into captivity. Under the Persians, they were relieved. Under the Greeks... The whole Greek language came into play and influenced the known world, and the Jews would learn Greek. And that would be the language of the New Testament. So you see uh, a tremendous purpose in this. And then the fourth empire, uh, the feet would represent what? The Roman Empire. So we see these four successive major empires. Well, in the beginning here, we see the presented the Persian Empire, and then we see also uh, the Greek Empire. And this will be, be the Greek Empire after Alexander the Great. Alexander was the first great Greek ruler, and he conquered the known world, uh, Persian Empire included, in a matter of eight or nine years. He died very, very shortly thereafter. And the Greek Empire would conclude with a man by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes. He's critical to this whole process. So God is, has been giving Daniel and us and the Jews who would read this prophecy, been giving them a picture of history that God has, has set before them, even before these empires even come into existence. Again, God is in control. He has a plan. He has a purpose. So the first half of these first 35 verses address quickly the Persians and then the Greeks. And uh, the entire period from the death of Antiochus Epiphanes to the time of the end 
So you've got Antiochus dies in the second century BC. From that point to the end, the vision is silent about. That, that whole time period is apparently skipped over. That would be the period which we would understand as, if you will, the church age. So we have no visibility there of the church. This has to do with God's plan for the Jews. The second section, then, verses 36 through 45 of chapter 11, deals with the last Gentile ruler who will be in power when Jesus returns. So you've got the Persians and the Greeks up to Antiochus Epiphanes. Then you have this large gap. Do you remember we talked about a gap theory? Then you have a, this, apparently this large gap. And then the, then the vision picks up again with, this, with the vision of this last Gentile ruler who will be ruling uh, when Jesus returns. Now we're going to talk more about that next time. If you look at chapter 11, the first four verses, as I said, deal with Persia and Greece in that order. The Persian kingdom was conquered by Alexander the Great. He is identified as the mighty king of verse 3. That would be Alexander. Notice, no names are given. So it's left for us later on, as we look back on these passages, to see is this fantasy, or did this actually, this actually happen? Were these, did these people actually live? Can we identify who these rulers were from uh, fulfilled history? After Alexander's death, his kingdom was divided among his four leading generals. Thus, we have the reference in verse 4 to the four winds of heaven. So Alexander's expansive kingdom, after he died, was divided amongst his four leading generals. And we know that from history. Now, since Daniel is concerned with the people of God, he's concerned with his people, the Jews, the focus of the vision will now shift to just two of the four successors of Alexander. So we have Alexander conquering the Persians. Alexander dies. His kingdom, the Greek kingdom, is broken up into four sub-kingdoms. Now the vision hones in on two of those four uh, parts of Alexander's kingdom. Are you still with me? All right. The purpose is that these two portions are going to have impact on Israel, on the Jews. Now, behind the scenes, you can never leave this out. You always have to remember that it's the demonic realm's purpose to destroy God's purpose, destroy God's will, any way the devil can, because he knows he's going to be destroyed. His whole point is if I can destroy Israel... Guess who will not be born? That's right, the Messiah, the Savior, the Redeemer. And so you see now this drama being played out, and if you don't know this is going on behind the scenes, none of this makes any sense. So the great overarching purpose is to ensure the existence of Israel. Are you not amazed 
Doesn't it take your breath away that the Jews still exist? I mean, when you think about it, every major nation, empire, power in this world has sought to destroy them. Anti-Semitism has reigned since the inception of Israel. Now, you can say, well, you know, I don't, I don't believe in... Uh, uh, what's, what is this? Um, I just had the word, I lost it. Oh, gosh. Doesn't it just drive you crazy? <laughs> It'll come to me probably in a minute, so... Okay, well, let's get back to these two two groups. The first group, they had their power in the north. Their power base was in Syria. And these would be known as the kings of the north. And again, as you read through the passage, you see a reference again and again to the king of the north. The second group would have their power base in Egypt. These would become known as the kings of the south. In the north, the rulers eventually became known as the Seleucid dynasty. And in the south, they became known as the Ptolemies. Judah was right in the middle. Judah was fought over back and forth, was handed over back and forth. The accounts of the 3rd and 2nd centuries B.C. are of how Judah passed back and forth between the Ptolemies and the Seleucids. So now you, you again, you see how this warfare and, and destruction of Israel takes on a new character. All this begins in verse 5 and goes through chapter 11, verse 20. Now, as I said, I'm not going to go into the details uh, of the section. I'm not going to try to name all the names because there's so many. Suffice it to say, if you have an interest in this, there are some tremendous resources available, ancient Near Eastern history and some really, really good commentaries that give you insight into all of these people and the intrigues and the battles and the issues that went on. It, is, it makes for absolutely fascinating reading, but uh, we don't have time to go through it all this morning. Suffice it to say that verses 5 through 20 chronicle the struggles between the kingdom, the kings of the north and the kings of the south, with Judah absolutely a pawn in the middle, being taken advantage of. The whole section culminates with the ascendance of Syria, in other words, the kingdom of the north. And it, is, it, it finally has a final conflict over. Uh, 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 Egypt in the south, and it results in then the return of Judah to Syrian control. Now this is set, this sets the stage for the persecutions of the Jews under this man Antiochus Epiphanes. So all this back and forth, back and forth movement of history. Now, now this guy steps forward, uh, and this is the major concern of verses 21 through 35, the persecution of the Jews. And again, with this persecution comes the effort to destroy the Jews because if they continue to exist and live, guess who comes into being? Jesus. 
Beginning with verse 21, a major section of chapter 11 is in fact devoted to a comparatively obscure Syrian ruler who was on the throne from the year 175 to the one year 164 B.C. for a relatively short period of time, only nine years. Daniel chapter 8 alludes to this ruler, if you recall, as the little horn. So if you want to go back and read chapter 8, you see the little horn rises up out of this milieu. He reigned in the days of the decline of the Syrian power in the north. And he reigned also at the time of the rise of the Roman Empire. So you see the Greek Empire passing off. Antiochus is one of the last kings. And now the Romans begin to rise up uh, in dominating world stage. From scripture standpoint and the revelation of the angel uh, to Daniel, this is one of the most important, if you will, features of the entire third empire. The reasons for the prominence of Antiochus Epiphanes were because of his persecution of the Jews, his persecution and his destruction of the Jewish temple, the altar. His title Epiphanes means glorious. It was a title he assigned to himself, which just reflected his own attitude. He wanted to be worshipped as a glorious God. It wasn't sufficient that he be a king. The description we have of him in Scripture is, remember, God's viewpoint of him. And uh, he was immoral, cruel, a persecutor, hated God's people. His life was characterized by, characterized by intrigue, expediency, uh, a lust for power. Uh, no honor whatsoever was about him. Sounds like a delightful person, right? In fact, in verse 21, he's described as, in effect, seizing the throne rather than obtaining it honorably. So you know, you you can get a sense of what kind of person uh, this ruler was. Through the succeeding verses, in verses 24 through 26, chronicle his growth in power, verses 27 and 28, reveal his wickedness, uh, verses 29 through 31, uh, when he is opposed by Rome, He's sent running back, and that's when he turns and vents his wrath on the Jewish people. In the process of his opposition then to the Jews, Antiochus pollutes the holy altar by, remember, offering a pig on the altar as a sacrifice. He uh, forbids the continuance of the daily sacrifices, which the Jews were commanded by God to conduct. He issued orders that the Jews should cease totally their worship of their God, and he set up an image in the holy place, probably a, uh, an idol of Zeus. All of this represents placing the abomination or the rebellion that causes desolation. Do you recall that phrase? In fact, Jesus uses that phrase. He refers to it in Matthew's Gospel, on the Olivet Discourse, when Jesus is talking about 
his view of history and what's going to happen with the Jews. In Matthew chapter 24, verse 15, we read this. So when you see standing in the holy place, the abomination that causes desolation spoken of through the prophet Daniel. So Jesus is looking back to the time of Antiochus when Daniel is prophesying about it. Daniel is given insight about it. This is going to happen. Now remember, Daniel's writing in the 6th century. That's not going to happen until the 2nd century under Antiochus. After the fact, Jesus, 2nd century B.C., Jesus in the 1st century after his coming, A.D., refers back to Daniel's prophecy. He said, there is going to be another, in effect, another, if you will, uh, abomination that causes desolation. Many scholars think that refers to the destruction of Jerusalem uh, in the year 70 A.D. by the Romans. But telescoping out, would there be another one at the end of time? So the timing, Daniel, again, the time, he has no clue about all this timing. He's just given this information. These things are going to be happening. And they're all going to be happening to the Jews. There is conflict. This desecration of the temple in opposition to the Jews and their faith precipitated then what's known as the Maccabean Revolt under uh, Judas Maccabeus. You can read about that in two books called First and Second Maccabees. If you have a, a, a version of the Bible, it has the apocryphal books. Uh, Maccabees are two historical books. And they, they give the account of these wars that go on during this time, this revolt. But when the Jews revolt against Antiochus, he brings his armies to bear and literally destroys tens of thousands of Jews and kills them uh, in this revolt and puts that revolt down. The entire series of incidents, including the persecution of the Jews, the desecration of their temple, the stopping of the daily sacrifice, Although fulfilled historically in Antiochus' persecution, this whole scenario is prophetic of the future persecution of the people of God. So it's not just for that time. If you will, you know how you do a telescope and, and the telescope's out and you get a, a, it takes you way out, you can see way out there? It, the prophecies are like that. They, they, you can see close in, but then you stretch them out, and there are, are, are multiple, if you will, dual interpretations of these prophecies, applications of these prophecies. But I think it's prophetic of the future persecution of the people of God, which will result in the Great Tribulation. And thus, Antiochus will become a type. He'll become a picture of the future man of sin that Paul describes in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Now, verses 36 through 45, the second section of chapter 11, describe the king who will do as he pleases. Or if you have one of the other translations, the, the king who exalts himself. This will be the king of the end time. Now, the debate around these last verses really is this. Who is this king? Did he already live? 
Who is in mind in these verses? Do these verses continue the prophecy of Antiochus Epiphanes? Or is there a broader perspective? Is there a broader intention? Is somebody else being pointed to? It is, I think, conceivable that Daniel thought he was still describing the climactic king of the north, whom he had been speaking about since verse 21. It's logical for him to think we're continuing to talk about this climactic king, presumably Antiochus. But the question is, is there more to this than Daniel might suspect? Is there more to this than has already been fulfilled in history? Is there somebody else coming, some other Gentile king? Now that's where the debate rages around this passage. Is it Antiochus he's still talking about, or is it somebody else? Is there a broader intention? Let me give you three things that would kind of hint, if you will, to maybe a broader intention, more expansive interpretation of those verses. Number one, when you read the verses, those last verses of the chapter, and you compare them to the previous verses, the language seems to take on larger-than-life terms. And you, and you get this when you read them again and again and you compare them back and forth. All of a sudden, this last section seems to be like before, but it seems to be much broader. That's a subjective thing. Secondly, in verse 40, you have the phrase, the time of the end, being used. This takes us, presumably, to the end of history, which, of course, was not achieved in the time of Antiochus Epiphanes. He only reigned till 164 B.C. But there's a third hint in this passage that will lead us to believe that it's not Antiochus who's being talked about. There's some other ruler, some other king, yet unnamed. Verses 40 through 45 simply do not work when applied to the life and the death of Antiochus Epiphanes. For instance, in verse 42, Antiochus did not extend his power over many countries. And then you see the phrase, Egypt will not escape. Egypt did escape Antiochus's power and his rule. Antiochus did not extend his power over many countries. So whoever this king is, he will do those things. And Egypt is representative of all the kings of the south. So he'll conquer the whole south, southern area, presumably Africa. In verse 45, you see another hint. Antiochus did not die when he pitched his royal tents between the seas at the beautiful holy mountain. In other words, in Jerusalem. Antiochus died back up in Syria. So some other king is going to die in the area of Jerusalem when he lays claim 
to that area. I believe that Daniel chapter 11, verses 36 through 45, refer, there are hints and references to Antiochus, to that king, but they take on, those hints take on larger-than-life characteristics, which we, living in the light of the New Testament, now might describe as anticipatory of a figure that we have come to know as the Antichrist. But we're going to explore this in much more detail next week. We're going to look at those verses in much greater detail. The pride of this king will be absolutely enormous. He will exalt himself not only above every other human being, but above everything that is called God. His pride as well as his fall will be just like that of Satan himself, recorded in Isaiah chapter 14. Turn with me to Isaiah 14 real quickly. There are people always say, well, you know, who who is Satan? Where did he come from? Did God create create Satan? And, And there's a great mystery around this spiritual being. And we have, we have information and hints and we piece it together through scriptures and we gain more and more insight. There are two interesting and I think somewhat obscure passages in the prophet Isaiah. One of them here is Isaiah chapter 14. The second one is Isaiah chapter 28. You piece those two together and they give you a picture of some temporal ruler but more than that, there's a spiritual being, a spiritual ruler, who's also addressed in that context. So just look with me at this passage in verse 14. Now, Satan wasn't always apparently Satan. He wasn't always the epitome of evil. Presumably, he was initially uh, the most beautiful, most powerful, the highest of all of God's creatures that he created. He is described as the anointed cherub. Cherub, one of the class of angels, cherubim. If you recall, we get some insight. The, remember the, the Ark of the Covenant, the box that the Jews were to carry around, and the, the mercy seat where the presence of God would dwell. And just on the top of the mercy seat were these carved angelic figures. They were called cherubim. Presumably, this was the class of angels that stood at the very throne of God. And if this particular being was the anointed cherub, then he probably had the closest visibility, if you will, the closest contact with God in the beginning. But we know that iniquity or evil was found in him, rebellion, and he was cast out of heaven. At that point, presumably became known as Satan. But let's read this, this, this section, verse 12. And I want you to keep in mind the, the end-time ruler, his pride, his arrogance, his life, and his fall will be just like described here. Verse 12, How you have fallen from heaven, O morning star, son of the dawn. You have been cast down to the earth, you who once laid low the nations. Verse 13, he said, you said in your heart. Now notice all the I wills. 
all the presumption, all the pride, all the arrogance. I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly on the utmost heights of the sacred mountain. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. So here's a being who prideful, arrogant. What does Proverbs tells us? What comes before the fall? Pride comes before the fall. He sets himself up. Lesson for us, isn't there? In this passage. Verse 15, but you are brought down to the grave, to the depths of the pit. So this being, whoever he really is, because of his pride, falls dramatically. This king, this ruler, will fall dramatically because he's exalted himself. Are you with me? As a king, the Antichrist not only has this pride and arrogance, but he also has power. Pride and power will characterize his life. And his own pride and his own power will lead him to assert his own sovereignty so that, as, as the angel says, he will do as he pleases. No one's going to stand in his way. Absolute power. Now, next time, as I said, we're going to look in great detail at these verses and at who this king is. But as you read chapter 11, and you see the kings of the north, the kings of the south, you see this conflict going back and forth, the question is, what's the lesson there? What can we take away from this? I think a very, very important lesson. Note this. History, history as it moves towards its end. Now, there are lots of people who don't believe there's an end to history. Lots of people believe that it's just going to go on and on and on and just repeat itself, repeat itself, repeat itself. The Bible doesn't give us that perspective. The Bible says that history is linear, it's not cyclical, and it has a direction and it does have an end point has a beginning point, has an end point. But the lesson I suggest that we draw from chapter 11 as you read it is that history as it moves towards its end can be seen to have no clear meaning. Now we all know people who, who have no, no meaning, no purpose, no direction, don't we? Are they frustrated people? Yeah. So you see, in a microcosm of a life, you see history moving towards its end, but it has no clear meaning. Nor will it ever be seen to have any purpose or meaning until we are able to look back on it from the standpoint of what has happened at its end and climax. So when you read chapter 11, it doesn't seem to have any meaning. So many people read their Bible and they say, this, so what? No, no real meaning, no real purpose. This history, what does this have to do with me? As history is moving in its direction, 
it will appear to have no meaning. It will be, appear to, to be nothing unless you have context, unless you understand what its goal is, where it's going. As I suggested to you, uh, the whole purpose of the demonic realm is to impede God's program. Why? Because the fulfillment of God's program means judgment for the devil. He knows that. Keep Christ from being born, the whole point of the Old Testament. Even when Jesus was born, all the attempts to destroy his life. Finally, at the cross, his life is destroyed, isn't it? Rejoicing in hell, I imagine, until three days later. And now he's out to destroy the church. That's why Paul tells us, our battle is not against flesh and blood. We make it against flesh and blood. But we have to realize, okay, I don't like you, I don't get, we don't get along, but that is being incited by spiritual forces of darkness once I open the door and give a foothold to that. Does that make sense? You see, chapter 11, when you read it, is dominated by men who do as they please. They act with absolute reckless disregard for others or for truth. There's a whole philosophy today in our culture that says there is no truth. Everything is relative. People are doing as they please. In the last days, men will become lovers of themselves. You see inter-family hatred reflected in these verses. And especially the hatred of brother for brother as the, as the development of this movement ongoes. If one finds another in his way of his overwhelming ambition, what does he do? Get rid of him. Remove him. It doesn't matter. The irrationality of the ups and downs of fortune is stressed also in these verses. Some succeed and others fail. And some fail badly. But apparently there is no reason for it, nor any justice in it. We see the hero will soon be followed by the villain. When any noble position goes vacant, there is always danger from some new occupant. Do we know that? And the most devastating changes can come without warning, can't they? If I'd only known, if I'd only seen this, if I'd only had some context, if I'd only been informed... I could have made a better choice and better decision. Are these dynamics any different from life as we face it today? Not really. We find that almost always some contemptible person is always ready in the wings waiting for his opportunity, which is sure to come. It was part of Daniel's agony. Now you have to see... The angel is giving him this vision. He's telling him, this is your history. This is what's going to happen to your people. And it was part of his agony that he faced all this squarely. And he doesn't present the vision cynically. 
He gives it to us just as the angel told him, communicated it to him. It kind of reminds us, I think, of something the writer to Ecclesiastes said. In Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 15, he says, In this meaningless life of mine, I have seen both of these. A righteous man perishing in his righteousness and a wicked man living long in his wickedness. Have we seen those things? You just have to shake your head. You say, where's the justice? Why did that guy have to die? Why did that guy? He was such a good guy. And look at this guy over here. He's flourishing. What sense does it make? You could become really cynical, couldn't you? Listen to what the, he, the writer says in chapter 8 of Ecclesiastes. He says, there is something else meaningless that occurs on earth. Righteous men who get what the wicked deserve and wicked men who get what the righteous deserve. Again, something that we, we understand, we're acquainted with. You see, I think... I think that the writer of Ecclesiastes, just like Daniel, is trying to help us see the futility or the meaninglessness of life without God. Your life must be contextualized. It must be contextualized in somebody who's in control and who has a plan and a purpose and there's direction. Otherwise, what? It's all meaningless. You end up becoming, without God in your life, you end up becoming, very simply, uh, an atheistic, nihilistic Darwinist. You really do. When you think the logic of your position through, it just simply comes down to this. It's the survival of the fittest. I'm going to do as I please. It doesn't matter. You get all you can while you can. There's no morals, no values, no ethics. Unless what? Unless your life is contextualized. Unless you have that perspective. All these kings are giving evidence of the meaninglessness of life. Daniel sees this. But Daniel knows there is purpose. Daniel, I think, takes us a step further than the writer of Ecclesiastes where Ecclesiastes proclaims the nonsense of life without faith, Daniel helps us to see the nonsense of trying to have faith unless at the same time we have hope. We have hope in what is going to be at the time of the end. So you can still have faith in God. But if you don't have hope, the angel is giving Daniel hope. You can have faith in God, but if you don't have hope for what's going to be at the time of the end, we win. God's plan comes to fruition. When I die, guess where I'm going? (laughs) To heaven. I have a living hope. 
I don't just have faith in God. I have a living hope. And without that, my faith in God still renders life largely what? Meaningless. But there is a direction. There is a purpose. There is a plan. God is in control. And guess what? He is a good God. The Bible says that his purpose is good and pleasing and perfect. You may not understand the details at the moment, but you have hope. You're not alone. He's leading you, guiding you, directing you as purpose for your life. Unlike these kings who had no hope. And so God gives through the angel and through this vision to Daniel a great answer to his prayer and a great hope for his people. And that hope will be culminated clearly in the coming of Jesus Christ. Isn't that beautiful? All right, amen. Now next time, next time we're going to look much more closely at this latter king who will reign. And then the third week, we're going to tie it all together and say, okay, what do we do with all this? All right? So you don't want to miss the next two weeks. Shall we pray? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your purpose. Thank you that you reveal to us, Lord, your truth. And you give us insight and understanding so that our lives are not without direction. They are not futile. They're not meaningless. Lord, that we know that we have a great purpose and that purpose is contextualized in our relationship to you. I pray, Lord, for all of us this morning that we would look to you with a greater sense of hope and confidence and joy. And, Lord, that we could encourage one another, all those around us, that you are at work and that your will is good and pleasing and perfect, even though that we, we may have difficult trying circumstances. And I pray, Father, for any of this that don't know you here this morning, that, Lord, that their lives, they would see them as hopeless and meaningless and futile, unless those lives are indeed contextualized in a relationship with you. I pray, God, that you would give them understanding and insight and turn their hearts towards you, grant them repentance as you have done with us, and save them. Father, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen, church? Amen. Amen.